Well, good morning. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here. Thank you, Mr. Vernon. We're, over the past few weeks, we've been, um, we set aside the past few weeks. We took a break from our series on the book of Acts, and we've been just walking through the Advent season together. And over the past few weeks, we've just been looking at different characters through the Advent story. Two weeks ago, Carrie Buckner walked us through the story of Zechariah. Last week, Julia focused us on Mary, and this morning, we're going to spend our time focused on Joseph, and Joseph's story as part of the Christmas story. And something that I'm hoping to accomplish this morning in our conversation about Joseph is to really help him feel human to us for us to really understand the ways in which he was a parent to Jesus. That even last week as we focus on Mary, and this week now as we focus on Jesus, there's this very real sense in the New Testament that Jesus needed his parents. They played important roles in his life. They weren't just somebody who gave birth to him they weren't just somebody who protected him. I think sometimes we have this thought that Jesus, because he's the son of God, that he almost like just raised himself, that like Mary gives birth to him, Joseph makes sure he's safe, and Jesus is just like, I'll take care of the rest. I'm the son of God. I'll figure it all out. I could probably teach myself better than you could teach me. But that's not at all the way that we actually see Jesus' early life. And there's clues throughout the gospel stories that point to that. And I want to spend some time this morning trying to maybe focus in on some of that. Our story today begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's just two verses. And Matthew gives us significant insight into Joseph's character. First, Matthew describes Joseph as faithful to the law. It communicates so much about who Joseph is. If we place these two verses into their context, the 16 verses that precede it are what's known as a genealogy. It's a list of names that stretch back generations all the way to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And theologians tend to look at the genealogy, this list of names, and focus on what it tells us about Jesus. And when we do that, I think we miss the fact that it's also Joseph's story, too. These are Joseph's ancestors. The genealogy begins with Abraham, and it ends with Joseph. Joseph's ancestors are Abraham and Isaac. They are Jacob and David and Solomon. Joseph has a rich faith history. His family's faith history runs deep. He comes from generations of people who were faithful to the law. 
And Matthew wants his readers to know that Joseph knows the scriptures. It's what Matthew's communicating when he says that he's faithful to the law. Joseph knows what we would consider the Old Testament scriptures. He knows them well, inside and out. He knows God's characters and ways. He is committed to living a life that is obedient and submitted to God. He is what we might call a person of God. The second thing we get from these first two verses is that Matthew tells us Joseph is kind. I mean, he doesn't say it directly. He doesn't say, Joseph is kind. But it's there in the text if we read it the right way. Matthew tells us Joseph did not want to expose her, Mary, to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. According to Matthew, Joseph found out Mary was pregnant. We don't know how. We don't know who told him. We don't know where he was when he found out. We don't know what his emotions were when he found out. We only know that he did find out. We do know that he did not get a firsthand preemptive angelic visit like Mary had. And we do know that once he heard the story, he likely took some time to process and pray. And after time and prayer, made the decision to divorce her quietly. Now, to more fully understand why Joseph likely came to this decision, we need to revisit something that Julia talked about last week. Betrothals in this time did not function like engagements do in ours. During a betrothal, Joseph and Mary, they were likely living in separate villages or towns. Any time they would have spent together would have been supervised, and they likely were not seeing each other or communicating on a regular basis. So the whole time that they're betrothed, they're not with each other the way that we are with our fiancés. They're not seeing each other. They're not communicating frequently. They're not getting any alone time, even when they are together. In fact, it's likely that Joseph didn't even know Mary that well. Their marriage was arranged, after all. Building a friendship and then intentionally entering into a relationship that just didn't happen in their culture. We think of engagement as the culmination of a long and thoughtful process where we've spent months and in some cases years dating someone before we propose. Joseph didn't have any of that. All he had was Mary's unbelievable story. I took a moment this week and just tried to place myself into Joseph's place. I tried to think of like what it would be like after years of knowing Julia and then months of dating Julia, and then getting engaged to Julia, and months of being engaged to Julia, and then having her come to me and say, I'm pregnant, it was the Holy Spirit. And I would have been like, that is the most white girl evangelical excuse <laughs> ever. That's like an excuse straight out of Grove City College. 
I went there so I can, I guess I, I am saying it based out of my own personal experience where I can't tell you the number of times I watched guys break up with girls because God told them to do it. Joseph didn't have any of what I had in my relationship with Julia. And I'm not sure I would have been able to believe Julia if this had been her story. I have no idea how Joseph could have believed her story. And it's clear according to Matthew that he didn't. We know that he didn't believe her story because Joseph tells us that he had already made the decision to divorce her quietly. Had he believed her story, he wouldn't be making plans to divorce her. And so because he didn't trust Mary's story, and because he had determined in his mind that the reason she was pregnant is because she had committed adultery, Joseph, as a person who is faithful to the law, only has two options before him. One, he could publicly shame Mary by bringing her before the religious authorities. Mary's family would have to return to Joseph the dowry he paid to them, and Mary could have been stoned to death for her sin. Or two, he could quietly divorce her by delivering to Mary a letter stating that he was divorcing her. This was a private option. It could happen in someone's house, and it only required three witnesses but this option would also mean Joseph enduring embarrassment and shame in his community because he would have spent his life with people asking him what happened. Daniel Darling, a theologian and author, writes this. Joseph was righteous because he was both committed to following the law, divorcing an unfaithful spouse, and doing it in the most selfless, compassionate way that was available to him at this time culturally. We don't know much about Joseph, but we do know this. He was a faithful follower of God who would do right when it cost him the most. Joseph chose to divorce Mary in a way that protected her. He chose a path where he would take on shame and not place it all onto her. And in doing so, he demonstrates compassion and mercy and kindness to a vulnerable woman. There's a story in John's gospel about a woman caught in adultery. It's a story some of you may be familiar with. She's caught in the act of adultery. She's dragged half-naked into the temple courts by the teachers of the law and Pharisees. And they make this woman stand in front of Jesus, and then they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? According to John... Jesus then kneels down and starts writing in the ground with his finger. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees question Jesus again. And he replies, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he kneels back down 
and he keeps writing in the ground. After time, people start leaving. John in his gospel tells us that it's the older people who leave first, but eventually everyone leaves, and it's just Jesus and the woman. And he asks her a question. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus was committed to following the law. He told the woman to stop sinning. But he was also committed to following the law in the most selfless and compassionate way possible. He did the right thing even when it cost him. Sounds a lot like the way Joseph treated Mary. Like father, like son. I have this picture that I wanted to share with you. Just as we walk through this next section, it's a picture of Joseph. It's by an artist named Kelly Lattimore. But it's Joseph with his son, Jesus. You can leave that up for a while, David. I think sometimes we think about Jesus' childhood and we think Mary's role was only to give birth to him. That Mary and Joseph's role became protecting and caring for him throughout his youngest years, but that because he was God's son, they probably didn't really have to raise him. That because he was perfect, he didn't really need his parents much. But by all indications, Jesus' childhood was unremarkable. Later in Matthew's gospel, he tells a story about Jesus returning to his hometown and teaching in the synagogue. And Matthew tells us that several of the people who heard Jesus teach knew him as a child. They'd seen him running around Nazareth. They'd seen him in his father's workshop. They knew his brother and sisters. He, they knew his mom and dad. They knew Jesus as a child. And Jesus shows up in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry and he starts teaching with power and authority. And their reaction is not to look at Jesus and be like, we saw this coming. Their reaction is to look at Jesus and say, who the heck is this? We watched him grow up and he was normal. There were no indications while he was growing up that this was what he was going to turn into. God chose Joseph and Mary for Jesus. God placed Jesus into their family and into their care on purpose. And it seems that aspects of Jesus' ministry were shaped through Joseph's faithful influence as his father. And so in just two verses, we get this picture of Joseph as an involved, present father, a man who is faithful to God, who is kind, compassionate, and merciful, and who is willing to take shame onto himself in order to protect a vulnerable person. Just to offer this, it's 
literally changed the way that I've read the Gospels this week, and I think it will for a long time to come. Just what I've learned over the past two weeks about Joseph and Jesus' childhood. I now read some of these stories about Jesus and wonder, I've always just read these stories about Jesus and thought, well, yeah, he's the son of God, of course. But now I read them and wonder, did his parents teach him that? Did he learn that from watching his dad? Did he learn that from his mom? Is he putting into practice in a more perfect form the exact things that were placed into him by his parents? Our story continues in verse 20. Matthew writes, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Personal thing here, if I were Joseph, I would have been like, this would have been a great visit to happen a little while ago. I love that the angel, though, reminds Joseph of who he is. It says, Joseph, son of David. So it's as though the angel is reminding David or Joseph of his destiny, of the role that he has to play in God's story. It's meaningful to me because when the angel appears to Joseph, he's likely under-resourced. And we know that he's living in a small, remote, unknown, and unimportant village that map makers didn't even care to identify on maps. Joseph's identity was not rooted in wealth, career success, or the community where he lived. The angel is reminding Joseph that his identity is rooted in God. The angel then confirms for Joseph the story he had likely heard from Mary. She hasn't, in fact, committed adultery. It really is the work of the Spirit, and he's supposed to name the child Jesus. And that's not a small detail. In this patriarchal culture, it was the father's absolute right to name his child. Fathers had complete rights over their children. And naming a child was one of the first and most important ways in this culture for a father to signal his control over his family. The angel, though, takes that away from him. It's as though the angel is telling Joseph, you don't control this child. Joseph doesn't get to look at the angel and say, look, I will only enter into this whole life I'm about to lead if you let me do it my way. He was required to give up his rights completely in order to be part of God's story. And he did it willingly, and he did it immediately. Matthew tells us in verse 24, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. As soon as he woke up, he acted on what the angel had spoken to him. He didn't ponder and wait. He didn't test it. He didn't go to some friends and see what they think he should do. He didn't process and pray like he had earlier when considering to divorce Mary. He acted immediately and willingly, and I cannot imagine that that was easy for him to do. I can't imagine the emotions he was experiencing. 
He'd have gone to bed having resolved to divorce his wife because he thought she had cheated on him. But in the night, he's visited by an angel who confirms Mary's story and then also tells him, you now have to give up your rights of naming your own child. Despite everything he's likely feeling, he does what God instructed. It's something he'll do two more times. Just in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel, there's two more times that an angel will appear to Joseph in a dream, and Joseph will immediately do what he's instructed to do by the angel in those dreams. One, he takes his family to Egypt, and then two, when he comes back from Egypt, he takes his family to Nazareth. Each time Joseph does what God instructs him to do, he does it willingly, and he does it immediately. It's a beautiful story to me. Tim Keller, who was a pastor and author, he gives expression to why I think it's so beautiful. He says, consider what the announcement of the angel meant to Joseph and Mary. Mary and Joseph know, Mary is pregnant and Joseph knows he is not the father. He decides to break off the engagement, but the angel shows up and says, marry her. She's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But if Joseph marries her, everybody in that shame and honor society will know that this child was not born nine or ten months after they got married. They will know she was already pregnant. That would mean either Joseph and Mary had sex before marriage or she was unfaithful to him. And as a result, they are going to be shamed, socially excluded and rejected. They are going to be second-class citizens forever. And this is just Matthew 1. When we get to Matthew 2, Joseph will see that having Jesus in his life means not just damage to his social standing, but also danger to his very life. It's a passage in the New Testament book, Hebrews, that I've been thinking about all week. It reads, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That word joy is traditionally the thematic focus for the third week of Advent, and it does not mean what I think we think it means. Joy is closely related to how we think of gladness or happiness, but it's not primarily an emotion. It's a state of being. It's a state of mind that results from the choices we've made. In the Old Testament, joy is closely related to victory over one's enemies. In the New Testament, its association shifts. It's more closely associated with the victory of salvation, that the Messiah has come, that Jesus is near, and the world is being made new. What's the joy that Joseph experiences? Because it sure isn't an easy life with a few problems and lots of resource. Joseph is able to experience joy because he's been invited into the center of God's redemptive story. Joseph is able to experience joy because he's been entrusted with stewarding God's son. Joseph is a faithful man. 
he understands exactly who the Messiah is prophesied to be. He knows what the Messiah's life will entail. He knows what he's been invited into will not be easy. Joseph will endure public shame and scorn because of the joy that's set before him. Joseph will relinquish his rights and submit himself fully to God because of the joy that's set before him. And Joseph will choose to risk his life and his family's life because of the joy set before him. Church's people who follow Jesus, we've been invited into the center of God's redemptive plan too. We have meaningful and important kingdom roles to play in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our relationships and in our workplaces. So what then can we learn from Joseph? How then can we live our lives for the joy set before us? I believe Joseph experienced the joy of the Lord by knowing God, living a life marked by compassion and mercy and by surrendering himself fully to God. First, we can be people who experience the joy of the Lord by knowing God. Joseph knew the scriptures. He knew his people's history. He knew God's character and ways. And we can be those kinds of people too. I wanted to try to ground each of these in like actual practices, ancient spiritual practices. Something that Pastor Shaq and Julie and I have been doing intentionally over the past few months. We want to be at the end of these, when we talk together, actually pointing us towards things. It's not just like go out and try this thing for this week and let's see how it works, but let's actually try to ground some of these things in spiritual and ancient practices. For us to be people who know the scriptures, we need to be people who practice study. We need to study God's word. Our minds will always conform to whatever we concentrate on. Every day we take into our bodies and process through our minds so much content. Podcasts, YouTube, video games, music, Netflix. Random fact. Netflix, earlier this year, because of a new federal law, has to, and other companies like Netflix, they have to release data saying how much people are using their platforms. Netflix released information that says the average, average, the average Netflix user from January 1st to June 30th streamed 16 full days worth of content. That means in a year, the average user of Netflix is giving an entire month of their lives to watching Netflix. The average user. Like, could you imagine just recognizing you're like, well, this year, got 330 days. 32 of them were Netflix. 320 days, I didn't do the math right. Is it 352 days? I'm doing this on the fly here right now. Could you imagine just like a full month, it's not just waking hours, that's 24, it's Guys, it's 32 full days the average person spends 
on Netflix. Church, we need to take in and study things that will help us know Jesus more. I mean, I like the night agent on Netflix, just like apparently so many other people. I thought maybe I found something that was unique, but no, according to that same report, I was disappointed to know that I was as common as every other person, apparently. Night agent was watched by more people than anybody else on Netflix. We need to take in things that help us know Jesus more. We need to be building regular rhythms of undistracted study where we comprehend and then reflect on what we're reading. By engaging regular rhythms of undistracted study, we lay the foundation for our ways of thinking and living to be shaped primarily by Jesus. Second, we can experience the joy of the Lord by living lives marked by compassion and mercy. It's how Joseph oriented himself towards Mary. It's how Jesus oriented himself to people all throughout his ministry. We see Joseph acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. One of the ways that we grow in compassion and mercy is through the spiritual practice of service. When we serve people who are different than us, people who have real needs, God builds humility into us. When we serve others, our pride and our arrogance are directly confronted. In March of this year, Barna, a research company, released a report on how many practicing Christians believe they should serve regularly. So just to put this out there, we've got 32 days on Netflix every year. And according to Barna, a Christian research organization, out of all practicing Christians in America, only 38% believe they should serve other people. According to Barna, 62% of people say, not that important part of, not an important aspect of our faith. I wonder if because Christians across the country are so reluctant to serve other people, if that's one of the reasons I see so many Christians in the public space lacking compassion and mercy. We're invited to build regular rhythms of selfless service to the people around us who have needs. And when we do this, when we step outside of ourselves and see other people using our time and our resource and our gifts to serve others, it builds into us the character of Jesus. Third and last, we can experience the joy of the Lord by surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Joseph, by taking Mary as his wife, despite the shame and scorn he'd endure, by relinquishing his right to name his son, and by doing what God instructed him to do through dreams, demonstrates a life surrendered to God. Julia talked about this last week. We do this through the spiritual practice of submission. Last week, we saw the way that Mary submitted herself and her life to God, and this week, we're seeing the ways that Joseph does too. To remind us of a quote that Julia presented last week from Richard Foster, what freedom corresponds to submission? It's the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. 
the obsession to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. We submit ourselves to Jesus and his teachings. We submit ourselves to our family and our neighbors and we submit ourselves to our faith community and the broken in our communities. When we submit ourselves to Jesus and his teaching, we surrender our thoughts and actions to him. We offer ourselves to him that our very lives might be a sacrifice. When we submit ourselves to our family and neighbors, we look beyond ourselves and prioritize the needs of those around us. And when we submit ourselves to our faith community, to the broken and those in need around us, we recognize that our very lives are meant to serve and build up other people, especially those that have been pushed to the margins and overlooked by our culture. So this Advent, may we, for the joy that Jesus sets before each one of us, be willing to take up our own crosses daily too. May we study and serve and submit so we can become more like Jesus so we can be people whose lives are marked by joy. Not because of our circumstances, but because we have Jesus. Because God is with us and he's inviting us to participate in his mission every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these stories and the opportunity that we have to reflect and to discuss and to learn that we might become people who are more like you. Teach us through Joseph's story. Shape us through Joseph's story that we might love and serve the way you do. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.